0: Heavenly Father, we thank You that You call us. And You call us to Your presence. You call us to come before You. It doesn't matter what has transpired in our lives. You look upon us through the sacrifice of Your Son, through His love, and what He was willing to do so that we could stand before You and have our sins forgiven and be able to begin again. And so, Father, I pray, we pray, that in this hour as we look into Your Word, that um, we would consider that. I know that many of the people in this room have already made a uh, confession, a profession of faith before you, and they belong to you for quite a while. But sometimes we just need to hear that call again, and we need to shake the dust off and get rid of some of the things that cling so closely and hinder our walk, and we just need to come like babies again, like little children and come before the cross and dedicate ourselves to You again. So we just thank You for this time, and we just pray that You'd open Your Word to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to tell you a story about a uh, guy who uh, he had a hardware shop across the street from another guy with a hardware shop. And uh, one day, and here's the thing, what irritated him was that the hardware shop across the street always seemed to be doing better than his hardware shop, right? And so one day he was rummaging around and back, and he found this box that he really couldn't remember how it even got there, and he opened it up, and um, as the story goes, there was a, uh, an old kind of uh, Arabian lamp in there. Now, I'm not doing a commercial for the new film Aladdin, but he rubbed that thing a little bit, and boom, out popped a genie. And you know how genies are? They give you three wishes, and so, um, the guy and the genie, they walked to the front window and he says, you know what I would really want? He said, I want you to make my hardware shop twice as big as it is. And all of a sudden, boom, this guy's shop expanded and it was twice as big as it had been. But as he looked out the window, he saw that the hardware shop across the street expanded also twice as big. Well, he didn't think that was fair, but he didn't say anything. He says, you know what, I, I wish that I had four times more the customers that I have right now. And all of a sudden, it just happened in the ledger that he had four times more contacts. So now he would have a booming business. But at the same time, the guy across the street got eight times more contacts. And he said to the genie, this isn't fair. I mean, he should have appreciated that anything good happened, right? And uh, that genies don't really exist. But anyway, that's beside the story. And so he said, that's not fair. And the genie said, well, see, here's the thing. This is also for you to help you develop as an individual. So whatever you ask for, I'm going to give twice as much to the guy across the street. The guy thought and thought and thought and then a smile broke across his face and he thought, okay, here's my final wish. I want to lose half of my business. Which would mean the guy across the street would lose all of his business, right? Because it doubled. Now you're wondering why I told that story. And I'm wondering why none of you even chuckled or laughed. But anyway... I'm used to this. My jokes don't go over really well. Because um, that real, that story may have absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today because we're going to be talking about love. But, you know, I throw, I thought I'd throw, because it's springtime, I'd throw in one more piece of trivia that has nothing to do with anything that I'm going to say. You know what the two, ti- two times um, in life are to plant a tree? The two best times to plant a tree. Ten years ago, and today. Okay? It has nothing to do with the message, but I thought I'd just lay that on you too. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And now, as you know, this whole series, this whole year, is nothing but love. Right? Loving one another. And all of these messages have somehow been brought in, and the theme of every one of them is love in some regard. Now, the uh, message today is a really easy one because it will not apply To anyone in this room. And so for me, it's just like a freebie, right? I can, you know, I I can kind of get away with just talking about stuff that doesn't matter to us. And, you know, so if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let me just read this and, um, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about here. It says, love, that's what we're talking about here, the context, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, the word wrongdoing means unrighteousness, uh, bad stuff, evil. Some of the translations go that far. You know, it's unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice with unrighteousness. Okay, and then the other thing is love rejoices with the truth. And we all know what that's about. So, I mean, this is pretty good, right? The verse... Well, let me ask, just to make sure that it doesn't pertain to anybody here. How many people, raise your hand really high so everyone can see it, rejoice at unrighteousness and people doing bad things? And you would just be enormously happy if there were more unwed mothers and there were more people on drugs and there was just more bad stuff in the world. How many people? See, it doesn't even apply to you. Isn't that cool? And how many people would rejoice if there was more truth in the world? And we knew who shot Kennedy and where Jimmy Hoffa was. And, well, those are irrelevant matters of truth. But, you know, all the hands should be up now, actually, really. I mean, we would all rejoice, right? And so the thing that's so interesting about this passage is that apparently it really does not have a lot to do with us today. So we'll see what happens here. Now, you know, in reading the commentaries, what I notice is that uh, these words are defined just like this. Unrighteousness, truth. And that's fine. Now, the thing is, I have an, er- I have an errant uh, or a different translation because I kind of came up in the RSV. And the RSV says, does not rejoice at the wrong, but rejoices in the Right. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But um, somehow this verse, either Paul is giving us a general treatise on, you know, just sort of a philosophical treatise on love, or there's something here that's missing. And what's missing is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this, folks, is a good reason why it's good to read your Bible every day. Because what happens, and if you read it every year, what happens is you become familiar with some of these things. As opposed to it just being a, a point in time where somebody talked about 1 Corinthians. And you know in weddings they always talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter. Well, you realize that the church in Corinth had grave problems. And I won't go into the the mechanics of showing you this, but Paul is has these problems in view in almost everything he is writing. I can go into the first chapter and show you how he's already talking about things that will go to chapter 10. Because he has this guy, we mentioned this last week, Sosthenes, right at his arm. And Sosthenes has come and told him about all these things that are happening in that particular church. This church has a lot of problems. And so, as Paul is going through this chapter, there's a big controversy here. Chapter 12, 11 through 14 have to do with the worship service. And there was something awful happening in there. People were fighting with one another. There was pushing and shoving and things going on. And people were angry with other people. There were groups in the church. There was, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas, and I belong to Christ. And all these groups were somehow vying for position. And what about the gifts? My gifts bigger than your gift. And the only thing I want to say right here, before we get too much further into uh, the passage, is that um, sometimes church becomes about church. Church becomes about people. Church becomes about the other people in the church. That's what happened in Corinth. It was a bad place. We talk about the first century church, the New Testament church. That was one, and it was not a good place. But boy, did we get a lot of great scripture because of it. And because of all of this, we can tend to forget what it really means to follow Jesus Christ. I know that should be impossible, but I've been around 40-some years doing this, and I realize it is fully possible to forget what it means to follow Jesus Christ because of the church. The church is a place that should enable us. But there's something that happens even before the church, and that is us learning to become disciples and to have the heart of God, and to individually know what it means to follow Jesus Christ, so that the church can become a co-op of helping one another follow Jesus Christ and getting the work done. But sometimes church actually stands in the way. And so when you look at the letters in the New Testament, oftentimes you find Paul is having to write these places to correct what is going on? And when you get to Revelation, you realize there are some churches there that are in serious trouble because they have forgotten the whole thing. And not only has the church as a group forgotten what it's there for, but that means that the individuals within the church got hurt in the process. There's a little thing that Jesus says that we don't apply to ourselves, but it says, will of the world for temptations or things that make people stumble. Because those will surely come, but woe to him by whom they come. And sometimes I've been in churches actually where the church can make people stumble, slow down, stop growing in their faith. So the question here is how do we learn to love with the heart of God? And it's almost like in spite of the church. So we have this situation here in Corinth, and Paul is really, if you understand what he's writing in chapters 11 through 14, Paul is at serious work here. He is a skilled craftsman, and he is aiming at things that they are doing wrong. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is anything but a general treatise on love. He is actually doing surgery with what he is writing. You know, families are weird things, aren't they? I mean, you know, a family is, a, is when they're healthy, it's a cool place to be. And it's a place you call home. And it's a place, you know, you're out in the world and you've got all this stress and tension on yourself. You come home and you go, oh. You can kind of be yourself and let down. And that is exactly how some families can become dysfunctional. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I hope you never have. But you're in the car with your parents and they are royally slaughtering people. They're talking about stuff and they're angry and they're complaining and they're doing... I I hope you never had that experience. And then what happens is you they they pull over to get directions or somebody flags them down or something. They roll down the window and then all of a sudden you see this transformation. They become like honest and... And, and polite. And, and you know, and it's like, what happened to the man driving this car? What did you do with my father? And you wish he would stay that way. Well, the bad thing about families is, and I mean this is just part of it, is you feel comfortable around each other, right? You just feel comfortable. You let down. And sometimes in churches, and I think this is probably Corinth too, rather than being united together in a common cause and everything, the mechanics of the church and whose group was better and who had the better gifts and who had the bigger voice was kind of breeding contempt within the church. Familiarity, after all, does breed contempt. Have you ever met somebody, um, you know, like on a trip? And, uh, you know, you find out that they're a Christian, and you talk together, and it's a great conversation. You know, I've gotten to the place where I'm, when I meet people like that, and I hate, I hate to say it, I know all of you, so I'll never meet you on vacation. But And if I did, I'd know who you are anyway. But you meet somebody on vacation, and they're like this sterling Christian, and I always wonder in my heart, is this someone who back in his own church is stubborn and resistant and locked down and wants power and is making people stumble in their faith. I've met people like that. I've pastored in churches with people like that. So what I'm saying here is what I think... I'm going I'm to give you a version of what I think Paul is saying here. Um, I think that what Paul is saying in verse 6 is that love always hopes and desires the good to happen to other people. That word unrighteousness can also mean injury. It's used in the uh, first century Greek for that. And it could mean love does not rejoice at injury. To see other people who we want position from to be hurt, to see something that somebody does for the cause of Christ tank because it wasn't our idea and we told them it shouldn't be done and they did it anyway and see I told you so and unfortunately I've been in churches where a lot of that happened now is that even possible that people can feel like that and all we have to do is look at our good friend Paul to see that that's possible did anybody rejoice that Paul got locked up of course they did If you've read Philippians, you know that. Paul says, here I am in jail. He said, the Word of Christ is being preached. Now, some people preach Christ out of rivalry and division. And he says, they're hoping to make me suffer in my chains, to make them harder on me. That wouldn't happen among Christians. It was happening. There were people out preaching Christ, and they were just... Trying to shove it to Paul. And not only that, there's this thing that happens in Galatians, if you're reading Galatians, and it says that we had brothers from Jerusalem of the circumcision party, and they were spying us out, trying to steal our freedom. And not only that, when some of them visited us, I mean, here, here we are. We're all eating together with Gentiles. Peter's having a pork chop. Barnabas is having a pork chop. We're having a good time. And all of a sudden, somebody runs in and they say, Whoa! The guy's from Jerusalem. The Christians from Jerusalem of the circumcision party are here. You know what? And all of a sudden, Peter and Barnabas fade to the other side of the room and Paul is just standing there aghast at the fear of all this. You don't think some of those people were happy when Paul got thrown in jail? See, we told you good that Paul's in jail. See, this is what God... And all I'm saying is that that verse there, love does not rejoice in the wrong, according to the RSV, but rejoices in the right, I think is one of these things that all of us can become guilty of. In German, we have a word for it. It's called schadenfreude. Joy in someone else's injury. We don't do that, do we? You know, um, uh, I think we do sometimes. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be despised and turn away from his anger. So I'm wondering, how do we get the heart of God to actually be like that? There's a sense of justice, right? There's a sense where we want to see the right things done, but when we see somebody we don't like prosper, it really it makes us unhappy. We hope that they tank. We hope that the guy at work who got the promotion that shouldn't have gotten the promotion, we hope that he fails. We don't want him to to be successful, do we? And what about a church? Somebody came up with a great idea and all of a sudden the church is running with it. Well, it didn't take my idea. And I think at Corinth that was more par for the course. But what do you do? How do you get the heart of God? Well, what, one thing you do is you look up. How do you get that resilient in your Christian life that you will rejoice with somebody else's success? Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And I think you're supposed to smile when you do that. For you will heat coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Well, you know, that's good. But see, you have to have the position in life where you live looking up. More interested in God's agenda. More interested in what's happening with Jesus Christ. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see his donkey, you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall help him to lift it up. You look up. It's having our focus so much on God and our lives so involved with Him that this kind of stuff that can happen and was happening in Corinth doesn't affect your own relationship with God. That you have a heart that rises above that and so you see that story about the genie at the beginning isn't really so far off. I think there are people who kind of live their Christian lives like that because they spend too much time looking at other people rather than where their eyes are supposed to be looking up. Now, um, I have been the pastor of a church split. Um, after this church split, I became the pastor of one of the factions. And you know what was kind of interesting? Is them hoping the other church would tank. Right? To say, I told you so. And you know what? It didn't. God bless them. Well, He didn't bless them with great growth, but they didn't tank. Now, you know, I'm sitting there going... Yeah, you know, because I've been around a little bit, I'm going, hey, I'm happy any place people are coming to Jesus Christ. You know, because, and, I, and I'm praying for them that God would work in their hearts so that whatever the malfunction was, that it would get corrected, that they would grow too. Because, you know, we need more churches. You don't think we do, but we do. You need all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. If you're interested in more people coming to Jesus Christ and seeing more disciples, well, something's got to happen, right? But churches don't exactly live like that. I remember there was a, a time at a church where I was a pastor there, and there was a guy who was really wanting to be kind of like the mini-pastor of the church. And he had kind of, um, well, just let's just say he couldn't do it. And part of the reason he couldn't do it was because I was there. And um, they put on an event where they totally excluded me. I mean... Now, I know in Plymouth Brethren circles, you know the position of pastor is really maybe not that important. Um, But regardless, I was the pastor of the church, and I do have the gifted pastor, teacher, uh, shepherd, teacher. But they they excluded me from that. So what am I going to do now? So I used to go around the building on Saturdays and pray through the building before the worship service the next day. And he was downstairs. He and I got alone. And I prayed with him. That the event would be a success. That God would bless it. Because somehow in our walk with Jesus Christ, and Jesus will always be asking us this, can you bring your devotion to me up a notch? As a servant, can you come a little bit higher so that you are not hindered by the people around you, but you can be a servant to them. And that's hard. Um, What about for the sake of Christ wanting to see people go beyond us? Wanting to see people go beyond us and get better than we are. To see them excel. Serving someone or serving uh, something so that they succeed and we stay in the shadows. Wanting to see Jesus' name elevated. And I'm just saying that I think what was happening in Corinth is everything was almost locked down to a worldly level. It all had to do with people. It all had to do with that guy over there or that woman over there. It all had to do with this group and that group. But what about the name of Jesus Christ? Who is free to freely serve? And to have that kind of of maturity in their walk with Jesus Christ. If there's a, a saying I heard one time, it, it's, it's amazing what can be done if we don't care who gets the credit. But it's more geared to us. Are we willing to let our relationship with Christ develop to the place of being fully devoted followers? To be disciples at a whole different level. You know, there's, a, there's this thing um, in the Bible about uh, Jesus tells his disciples, the first will be last and the last will be first, right? You understand that? You remember that story? And my problem for many years was, I always was one of the guys grumbling about only getting the one denarii. You know? I was, I was thinking, look, if I've worked for 12 hours... And you promised me one denarii, and another guy gets here and he only works for one hour, and you give him one denarii, that totally isn't fair. You can count on me complaining. I mean, I had to wrestle with that one for a while. Until we, had, we moved to Germany and we had cherry trees in our backyard. And the thing about cherry trees, especially in wet, kind of uh, humid, mucky Germany, is when they get ripe, that's almost the day before they go bad. So you've got to harvest them like almost all at once. And I'm out there, you know, and, and, doing my duty. I'm up in the tree trying to get the cherries out of there and the kids are all over the place. I don't know where they were, but nobody was home. I'm the one home alone and I'm trying, and the, the only thing helping me were the blackbirds pecking on the other cherries. I said, get out of here. You know, I'm trying to save the cherries here. And it occurred to me, all I want is help. I don't care who comes and how much they get paid. I want to get these dumb things off the tree. And when the Lord hit me with that, I thought about the harvest. And I thought, you know, who cares who gets the credit? Who cares who is the top dog? If our focus is on Jesus Christ in trying to reach lost people, who cares who gets the credit? The more the merrier and pay them all you want, and I don't care at the end of the day if you pay me at all. Because if we're trying to get these people out of the the harvest saved, then we need all hands on deck. And what it just made me feel for that moment, and it doesn't last too long with me, you know, like I had almost come up to a different thought, or a different understanding, a freedom in my heart of saying, you know, I really don't care. And so that's what I really want to talk about here, is how do you develop that kind of heart and become that kind of person? Uh, Examples I would give you would be of Barnabas. You realize that in Barnabas' relationship with Paul, he went from mentor to the person standing behind Paul, right? Paul went way beyond Barnabas. Barnabas had a disciple's heart. He was a disciple maker. And when he was done with Paul, he went on to John Mark, who, by the way, a failed disciple, became the first writer, gospel writer. Um, Jonathan this week in the Bible uh, David's on the run Paul's trying to kill him Jonathan comes Jonathan is next in line for the throne Jonathan comes to David and he says I know that you're going to become the king and he encourages David it says he strengthens him in the Lord how do you become that kind of a person where God is your first and foremost interest in serving Him is what you live for. So I'm going to just give you a couple things in this form here. How do you become a person who loves with the heart of God? You have to develop a close relationship with the Lord. You have to become a disciple. You have to become an intentional disciple. You have to have it on your mind. It has to be something you're trying to do every single day of your life. And that's why, for me, you know, and, and this isn't legalism or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, if being a disciple is learning directly from Jesus, you have to sit at the Lord's feet. Do you want to even sit at the Lord's feet? Is it that important to you that you will cut everything out of your schedule so you have a time every day, non-multitasking, to sit at the Lord's feet and learn directly from Him? Because that still happens. John 14, And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And you have the Word of God. Are you willing to make that intentional? Because if you don't, if it is only a hobby, if where you get your most feeding is from here, you become a church person. And that person sitting next to you or in front of you, they can become that hindrance. They become the measure of what it means to be a Christian, and you're better than they are. Is that really what this is about? Is that really what being saved by Jesus really means? Or is it something we pour all of ourselves into. It has to be intentional. It has to be everything. And God is patient. He's willing to wait for us. You know, well, I'm too busy right now. I I, I don't have time for that. God knows I don't have time for that. Really. You know, I, I'm willing to go with it, right? I'm a pretty... You know, easy to go person. I flex so much, sometimes I'll lose a body part, pick it back up, reattach it. But the thing is, and I think God's willing to do that too, but you know what God's not willing to do? Force you to do it. He won't force you to love him. He won't force you to be devoted to him. How much does Christ really mean? Are you willing to give him everything and make it your life's work to become like Jesus Christ, and you can't do that without being in the Word of God. You cannot do that. I think it's the greatest privilege in the world. And I go to places in different churches, and I see it not even taken seriously. And you will never be able to follow as a disciple unless you do that. Your heart will always be bound here by what the other person does. And the guy who says, hey, look, I'm going to sue you, for your cloak, you really have the freedom to give them your shirt off your back too. That's part of Jesus' talk about being disciples. Love does not rejoice in the wrong, but it rejoices in the right. Paul said, "I have been crucified by, with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me." and gave himself for me. Okay. You have to develop a close relationship with Christ, number one. Number two is you have to serve God and people constantly. Constantly. Now, where would I get that from? Um, that's the idea of being a disciple. See, because Jesus brought his disciples to become His disciples to become makers of disciples. Disciples make disciples. No, church makes disciples. No, disciples make disciples. And you cannot become a maker of disciples unless you become one first. And then you have to be with people. You have to be allowing your life to flow into another person's life. And you don't learn it overnight. You have to constantly, intentionally want to do that. You have to be at it. And I know we're all busy. I really do. I know we're all busy, but the only commission we have from God is to make disciples. That's the only one we got. So if you have a list of ten things to be involved in in your life, and we only have one commission from God, it sure seems to me that that ought to be somewhere, you know, on the other side of five. Some of the first few. And the thing is, you don't get good at it by not doing it. You only get good at it by doing it, just like you learned your trade, just like you learned at business, right? You constantly do it, and you fall down, and you get back up, and you keep on going, and you keep putting yourself into it, and eventually you become someone who knows how to nurture the faith of another person. But you don't get better at serving by not serving. So you just have to make the decision. Of serving in church. And what I'm, what I'm, or not serving in church, serving Jesus Christ by working in the lives of other people. See, the church is a place where we are trying to do that together, but I've been in some churches where that's a hindrance. So, what, you know, I remember the story by Howard Hendricks, he told about um, the guy who really mentored him as a, as a boy, right? And Brad or something like that. And Brad goes into the church and he says, I want to teach Sunday school. And they say to Brad, great. But here's the deal. We don't have boys for your Sunday school class. He said, what am I going to do? He says, go out and find them. Now, isn't that a hindrance? Wouldn't you find that a little bit daunting? Of course, this is in Philadelphia in the old days where there were squads of little vagrant kids running around. So this guy goes out there and he harnesses these kids playing marbles with them. And they eventually start coming to his church and he becomes their Sunday school teacher. He didn't let that stop him. Well, I can't become a Sunday, I can't work in the lives of other people because the church doesn't have any peoples for me to work in. Or whatever. He went out and found them. Holy cow, we don't do that anymore. And what I'm saying in all of this is our devotion to Jesus Christ comes before church. It comes before church. It is the the center of who we are in Jesus Christ and growing in Him. And our call to serve Jesus Christ, our call to... To serve Jesus Christ is not dependent on the church at all. It is dependent on our love for Him. Our love for Him. And we just do it. And the church gives us the avenue to do that. It is not a boundary. It is not a hinderness. And even if it were to be, Would that stop us? You know that we have this great phenomena going on nowadays of people who are totally disenchanted with the church. They don't go to church anymore. You know where they go? They go to their TV. They go to podcasts. They hear on any given Sunday the best preachers in America and the best praise music in America and they never even have to leave the warmth and comfort of their own living room. Isn't that amazingly wrong? It's amazingly wrong. Because I don't care how much the church stumbles over itself, it's still the bride of Christ. And it's still the thing that Jesus commanded us to serve through and in. But here's the deal it never has to be a hindrance. How do we raise our spiritual life above that? And I'm just gonna say you need to hear his call. Maybe you need to come to the altar. You know the best time to did I tell you when the best time to plant a tree is? Yeah. So, I don't know what you've been doing for the last five years, or even ten years, but what about today? Are you willing to say, I'm going to make this my life? This church is not my hobby. Christianity is not my hobby. My love, my life is Jesus Christ and serving Him. And I will pour my life into other people. And if there's nobody there to pour it into, I will find people to pour my life into for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of making disciples. And we just happen to be in a good place. But the thing is, we have to want to do it. And maybe today is that day. You fall down, but you get back up and you keep following. And what comes out of it is learning to love with the heart of God. So that when you see a person do good and God blesses that person, no matter who they are, you praise God. You pray for them expectantly that God will work in their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. It's hard for us Uh, And you understand that we are but dust. And as we read the New Testament, whether it's reading about the churches or even the things that David is going through right now, we understand that you show us in, uh, in all sorts of different ways that we will always have struggles. But therefore, you've given us your word and you've given us your Holy Spirit and our Lord calls us. He keeps calling us to the altar. He keeps saying, I want you to come here. And I know what's happened the last five years. I know what's happened the last ten years, but I want you on your knees. This is the place where we talk. This is the place where you feel my comfort. This is the place where my heart flows into yours. You say you love me. Are you willing to sit with me every day? quietly and talk with me and lay these things out before me and let me speak to you. Father God, help us. We want that for ourselves. We don't want to just live any life on earth. We want a life that reflects our Lord Jesus Christ. We want it above the chatter and above the noise of humanness. We want to be able to bring His clear love unhindered into the world around us. We just thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you're so patient. And we thank you that it doesn't matter what we have been doing, where we have been, when you call us to the altar, we can bring everything we are and just sit there before you and receive your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.